Every time I read the scripture from this morning's Bible story that we'll look at, I, I think back to when I was playing ball years and years ago at Murray State, and our coach, one of our coaches, his name was Bart Osborne, he was an assistant coach, and he was in charge of the scouting report. And he was the guy that right before the series were to begin, he would have his little notebook with all of his notes about the other team. And so he would have all these different things written down about their offense and their defense and their pitching and their base running and all of this stuff. And he would go through it all and he would tell us, you know, the, the, the starting pitcher in the first game, you know, he, he sits at about 87, 88. That's how hard he throws the ball and he's got a curveball that breaks away from you and so on and so forth. He's got a nasty changeup, whatever. The next guy, he doesn't throw it nearly as hard, but he can put it anywhere he wants to and you better be careful. He'll throw you any particular pitch at any point and, uh, and then, hey, they're base runners. They're really, really aggressive. You've got to make sure to take care of the ball. On defense, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're solid. They don't make many mistakes, whatever it may be. I remember one thing in particular. He would categorize all the runners, and, and, a, and a one runner was, was a really fast. He called him a rabbit, a, a rabbit runner. Not rabid, but rabbit with a T. <clears throat> anyway, um, and then a, a, a two-runner was just an average runner. And then a three-runner, he called him a truck. That means he couldn't move at all. He was just, he was just you know, slow motion. But we had a scouting report. We would always try to get prepared for the games. And he would present to us the facts about the other team. Now, one of the, one of the things that he never talked to us about was how the other team looked in uniform. He never talked about, well, they're so big and strong and they put on the uniforms and they're really intimidating. He never talked about that. You know why? Because it didn't matter. It didn't matter what they looked like. It mattered what could they do and what could we do to prepare for them in a particular way. And so he would simply present to us the facts. As a good coach, he knew that all that his team needed to know really was not an interpretation of the facts, but just the facts. And we just needed to be prepared for that. And so going into those series, those games, we knew this guy was quick, this guy was slower, this guy threw hard, this guy didn't, whatever it was, and we felt pretty prepared. And as a coach since then, I've tried to do some of the same things. Uh, we, we would try to prepare guys when I coached later on in high school and youth leagues and different things. Just tell them a little bit, you know, this, this particular guy, he throws pretty hard. Be ready, whatever it may be. There's some guys, every time that we would hear the scouting report, they would then go out and look at the other team. And they would take the look test over what the scouting report said. The look test. Well, they look like they can play really good. They're big and strong. And some guys said, well, we're already beaten before we get on the field. I've coached these two guys before. And in, and in some of our games, we go out, and the guys were a little bit bigger than us, weren't they? You guys, of course, are big, strong, strapping young men. But, but they were a little bit bigger than us, right? Sometimes we would play guys, and they would be huge. And guess what? You guys all thought right then, what? We're done. Well, these guys are huge. But what would we tell you? You know what? If you make your plays, you make your pitches, you do what you're supposed to do, we're going to win the game. The Bible story we're going to look at today, I think, highlights that. And really highlights it far beyond any sports perspective. It highlights it for us in life. Because we do this in life all the time. We take a scouting report. And some of you right now have taken a scouting report of your life and you've compared the facts and you look at it and you say, I can't win. You look at what you're up against in life, whatever situation you may be dealing with, whatever difficulty, whatever is going on in your life and you say, I'm done, I'm already defeated before I even start. What's the sense in playing the game? The scouting report has come back and it's negative for you. In fact, you've looked across the field and you see those big, strong players, that big, strong situation you're facing. You said, I got no shot. And it's that that I want to address this morning from Numbers chapter 13. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn with me. Numbers is over in the Old Testament. 
He goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. Numbers being the fourth book in the Old Testament. So if you've got a Bible, Bible app, some kind of way to get to the Scripture this morning, look it up with us and follow along. We're going to focus on the chapter of Numbers 13. We're in a series called Bible Stories You Thought You Knew. Some of you grew up in Sunday school. Some of you have heard Bible stories just in culture or whatever. We're trying to look at these from how do they fit in the overall story of what God has done because the individual Bible stories are not just little episodes with good moral lessons to teach us something that is, in, that is independent, if you will, from the rest of Scripture. They all build in God's overall story and ultimately they all build up to or build from Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection. So that's what we've been looking at. And all year long we're taking these different Bible stories and what should we really learn from them beyond the good moral lesson maybe that you were taught years and years ago. Now, where we pick up the story today in in Numbers chapter 13, the Israelites, God's chosen people, stand really on the brink of what was known as the promised land. The promised land being the land that God had promised to them as their inheritance. They had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years and God got them out of that and he's led them to the point where now they stand right there looking at it. They can see the land and God has performed lots of miracles and he's finally to the point where he says, all right, now it's time to go. Look with me in verse 1 of Numbers chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribes, send one of its leaders. So the Lord's command, so at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of the leaders, all of them were leaders of the Israelites, and these are their names. You see there, all those names from verse uh, 4 all the way through 15. There's a representative from every single tribe. So here's, here's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to go get the scouting report. It's for, if you look back at verse 2, it's for the land of Canaan, and don't miss this part, which I am giving, God says this, I am giving to the Israelites. It was already theirs. Victory was already theirs. The land, in one sense, was already their possession, though they had not played the game to gain the victory. Each tribe was going to be represented, since they're all going to share in what God was giving to the Israelites. And you imagine it was an exciting time for the nation of Israel. They had been slaves, now they're not. They had no land, and now God says, this is the land I'm giving to you. They were finally where God wanted them to be all along, out of slavery and on the doorstep of the promised land, which represented all the prosperity, all the rest, all the enjoyment that God wanted them to have. And so Moses is going to send out some scouts. Look in verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like, whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are the tree are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. And you see there in, in parenthetically, it was the season for the first ripe grapes. So here's their job. Go report the facts. Bring us back what you find. Tell us about the land. Tell us about the population. What are the people like there? Tell us about the security of their cities. Tell us about the produce from their land. The scouting report was going to let them know what they needed to do in order to take it and what they would expect to experience once they had gotten the victory. Remember what God had said. I am giving this land to the Israelites. It's already yours. Essentially, God is sending out these scouts to say, just go look around and see what it is that it's going to be, that's going to be required of you, that's involved to take it. 
Because even though God, of course, had given, uh, given it to them, they still had to participate. Their faith was still going to have, have to be put into action. It wouldn't necessarily be easy, but it was theirs to take. <clears throat> then look at verse 21. So they went up. They scouted the land out from the wilderness of Zin, as far as Rehob, near the entrance to Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Hamayan, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were living. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they came to the valley of Eshkol, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, which was carried on a pole by two men. They also took some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from scouting out the land. So they get a full scouting report. Full report. Pages and pages of notes, I'm sure, on the place that they come back and they, they, they go all over. They see the entire land. They see all the people. They took some of the produce of the land. We kind of get the idea here that, that one cluster of grapes required two guys to carry it on a pole. You ever seen a cluster of grapes you get from Walmart or somewhere? No offense if you work at Walmart, but they ain't like that. You know what I'm saying? I love grapes. I think grapes and pineapples are probably my two favorite fruits. And then strawberries right after that. I think those are, those are probably my two favorites. Grapes, pineapples, strawberries. Pomegranates and figs, not so much. But grapes, I like grapes. Anyway, this one cluster of grapes, huge, carried on a pole by two guys. It took two guys to carry this one cluster of grapes. Imagine when they bring this back and these people look and say, that's the land that God has given us. It's incredible. Now, at this point, we believe their report is simply going to reaffirm what God has already said. God had promised them a land. Do you, do you know what the, the terminology in the Bible it says? Flowing with what? Milk and honey. You ever heard that before? Somebody like, what in the world does that mean? What that means is it's really fertile and it's got lots of great stuff in it. And it's going to produce lots of great stuff for you. It, 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 it's great farmland. They've got lots of cattle on it. And it flows with milk. That's a symbol of the cattle. And honey. All these incredible, incredible plants. You would think at this point, all it is is, yeah, man, God was right. It's exactly what it's supposed to be. Then look at verse 27. They reported to Moses, we went into the land where you sent us. And look at this part. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey. And here's some of its fruit. Now stop there for just a second. Stop there. Don't read further. Don't, don't read the next word in verse 28. Don't read it. You know what the next word is? However. However. Don't read the next word. Stop right there. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey. What are they saying about the land? It's exactly what God said it was going to be. God has led us out of slavery, crossed the Red Sea. He's given us the Ten Commandments and His law. And now look at this land. He's, he's true to His word. It's exactly what God said it would be. Every, imagine at this point, everybody getting excited. Indeed it is. Flowing with milk and honey. Man, it's incredible. It's sort of like hearing the scouting report before the game. And you get that the pitcher always throws a first pitch fastball down the middle. Some of you aren't baseball players, and I, I'm, I'm sorry for that. But some of you don't even like baseball, and I'm sincerely praying for you that you will get right with God. You're in sin. A, a fastball right down the middle. Every single time that you come up, it's going to be a first pitch fastball down the middle. You know what's coming. It's easier to hit, right? First pitch fastball down the middle. Listen, I, the, the greatest moment of my college baseball career happened early. It was downhill from there. The greatest moment of my college baseball career, we're playing against Alabama. This has nothing to do with the sermon. We're playing against Alabama. 
We went down to Alabama. They're ranked 15th in the country. I was a freshman. I'm starting at shortstop in Murray State, scared to death playing against Alabama. They were big and strong, if you know what I mean. Looked really good in their uniforms. Because here, I mean, look at me. And so, anyway, so we, so I'm leading off. I'm the first batter of the game for us. Their pitcher, warming up, is throwing about 93 miles an hour. And every pitch he throws is a fastball about right here. He throws eight warm-up pitches, all fastballs right here. I'm not too dumb. I figure, you know what, he's probably not going to start me off with a slider. He's probably going to throw a fastball about right here. I closed my eyes and hit it and knocked it straight out of the park. It was incredible. Greatest moment of my college career. You should have seen the look on my roommate's face because I didn't hit home runs. And and he he just he was shocked. I come back. I'm not even sure if he slapped me high five. Shocked. Anyway, so so imagine that the scouting report says this dude's going to throw you first pitch fastball down the middle every single time. Makes it a whole lot easier to hit. That's what they're saying so far. It is indeed exactly what God has said. It's going to be great. And then what was that next word? However, however, uh, if only they'd stopped at verse 27, you know? Okay, guys, just stop. Just right there. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey. Just step back. Don't say another word. However, they say, what? The people living in the land are what? Strong. The cities are large and fortified. People are strong. They pass the look test. They're huge. Then look at verse 31. The men who had gone up with him responded. These are the scouts. What are the first two words there in the translation we're using this morning? What? We can't. We can't go up against the people because what? They are stronger than we are. We can't win. The scouts at this point didn't even want to play the game. We quit. We forfeit. I've been there before. Played against teams that were obviously stronger, bigger, faster. They looked better than us. Can be a little intimidated, a little scared. And then verse 32, so they gave a negative report. It indeed flows with milk and honey, but... They gave a negative report about the land they had scouted. The land we passed through to explore is one that, look, devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw there are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there. To ourselves we seemed like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed the same to them. It's interesting they would say that the land devours its inhabitants, but all the people there are huge. Those things don't go together. You get that? It devours its inhabitants, but they're huge. If the land is so bad and so awful, how did those people get so big? But that's what happens, isn't it? We exaggerate. We don't make any sense when we get to the point where we're a little scared. And by comparison, they say in verse 33, we are small and they are huge. They pass the look test and we don't. We're weak, we're small, we're defeated. And I want to show you the results of what happened to these folks who went to, to, to scout out the land. Look in Numbers 14, just, just one chapter over. I want you to look in verse 22 to begin with. So these dudes come back and they have this scouting report that says we can't win, it's over. And in verse 22, God is speaking... None of the men who have seen my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tested me these ten times and did not obey me, none of them will ever see the land I swore to give to their fathers. None of those who have despised me will see it. Skip down to verse 29. 
Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. All of you who were registered in the census, the entire number of you, 20 years or more, because you have complained about me, verse 30, I swear that none of you will enter the land I promised to settle you in except Caleb and Joshua. And then look uh, down at verse 32. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and bear the penalty for your acts of unfaithfulness until all your corpses lie scattered in the wilderness. You will bear the consequences of your sins 40 years. Based on the number of 40 days that you scouted the land, a year for each day, you will know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. I swear that I will do this to the entire evil community that has conspired against me. They will come to an end in the wilderness, and there they will die. We can't win. And God says, that's right, because you're not even going to fight. You want to get to play the game. You forfeit. And there in the wilderness, they died. Now, in one sense, their scouting report wasn't wrong, was it? Maybe the other team was huge. Maybe they did look intimidating, but there was a question that they kept forgetting, that they kept failing to address. Look in verse 30 of chapter 13. This question is, is kind of sort of what underlies what Caleb is going to say. Look at it. Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, We must go up and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. You can almost hear Caleb and Joshua, the other scout that brought the positive report, and Moses and Aaron, the leaders of the people. You can almost hear them shouting, Stop, 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 stop. Don't listen to these people. Don't listen to the however. Don't listen. You've seen all of it. You've seen maybe what's good and what's bad, but the question that they wanted the people to remember is, have you taken God into account? Have you taken God into account? Does your scouting report include Him? Have you forgotten who is on your side? Have you forgotten who He is? What He has done? What He can do on our behalf? Have you taken God into account? I think that's the question for them and certainly for us as we look at our intimidating situation. Have you taken God into account when life is uncertain? Or maybe when it seems uncertain. When you're asking, how will, how will this work out? I, mean, what? I don't understand. Think about what's uncertain for you right now. You know, we like to consider ourselves really smart and knowledgeable. But we understand a lot. Do you might know what's going to happen in five seconds? I'm going to look over there. You didn't know that, did you? I was looking at Bill. No, nobody knows what's going to happen. For all of us, life is uncertain. These people, the Israelites, could they win the battles ahead? What was going to happen? If God had promised this land, why didn't he just give it to us? Why do we have to fight for it? Why, isn't all these, why don't the people just vacate? And for you, you have uncertainty in your relationships. Maybe a marriage. You don't know what's going to happen. Maybe a relationship with a friend, a family member, a child, a parent, somebody. And it's uncertain. And you're worried about it. You also have uncertainty with your job sometimes, don't you? Some of you right now, you're going to go to work tomorrow and you don't know if this will be your last week at work or not. It's tenuous. The company's maybe not doing so well. Nobody else knows, but you know. You put on your smiley face here Sunday morning and yet you're terrified because how will I pay the bills without that job? Some of you have uncertainty in your health. Something's not feeling right. You haven't said anything to anybody yet because you don't want to alarm your family members, but you know something's wrong. 
There's uncertainty. Or maybe you've got decisions to make, problems to address, addictions that you're dealing with, tragedy that has struck, heartbreak that won't leave you alone, the future that you don't know what to do about, and life is uncertain. And you stand on the edge of where God has you right now and you realize, I don't know what to do. And I'm worried sick about it. Few people are comfortable with uncertainty. I've not met anybody who really loves it. Most of us do all that we can to reduce it or to avoid it. We often become negative or pessimistic or controlling so that we don't have anything in our lives that is uncertain. I've got it all under control, which of course is the biggest joke in human history, right? We've got it all under control. The outcome for whatever you're dealing with seems uncertain. And let me ask you, have you taken God into account? Have you considered Him in all those things that you're worried about, in all that is uncertain in your life? Have you taken God into account, or is it just you and what you know? How about when you feel afraid? You look across the field, and those guys are huge. That situation looms large, and you are scared to death of what is going to happen. You're intimidated. And you know those guys would love nothing more than to destroy you. And you see that situation, that problem, and you're scared. Maybe you're not scared of a person, but you're scared of failure or rejection or death. Or of what might happen or of not knowing what to do. Look at verse 20, chapter 13. He says, is the land fertile or unproductive? Are there trees in it or not? Look at the next two words. What does he say? Be what? Courageous. Be courageous. You know, there might be some things in life that are worth being afraid of. There are some things in our human understanding that we can't help but fear. What does the Bible say over and over? Be strong and courageous. It's not about ignoring or pretending that things don't scare you. It's about taking God into account even when you're afraid. In that failure, in that loss, in that rejection, in the eventual death that we will all face, what happens to our fear when we take God into account? Have you taken God into account when you're afraid? What about when you know you're inadequate? When you know that you're completely inadequate. Verse 28, they say, However... (laughs) The people in the land are strong. Verse 31, they say they're too strong for us. In themselves, the Israelites could not win the battles ahead of them. In themselves, they had no shot. It, it wasn't that long ago that they were a nation of slaves. Not, they're not warriors. They don't know what to do. They don't have the strength. They're inadequate. Literally no way that they could win the war for the promised land. They were inadequate for the task ahead. You you probably have felt that way in a particular situation. We just did a home remodel. I don't have a clue what I'm doing in a home remodel. Some of you came over and helped out with our home remodel. Why? Because I said, hey, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Can you help me? I was totally inadequate for that. I don't have the experience for that. I didn't grow. I told you, I've told you guys a million times. I knew two things growing up. Jesus and baseball is it. Outside of those, and even in those, I don't have complete knowledge. I have very little knowledge about anything else. Those two that completely inadequate. We're going to do that. It was an intimidating task. Maybe you felt that way in certain things in your life. And it's not funny. 
You really do feel inadequate. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to solve this problem. I don't don't know how to get past this. It's more than you can handle. And maybe it's whipped you before. You've tried and you've failed. I, I can't do it. You don't have the knowledge, the skill, the experience to deal with this, whatever this may be. Those folks in that moment when they were inadequate, you know who they failed to take into account? God. All they're looking at is themselves. I don't have what it takes. That is too strong for me. They forgot who God was and what He had done. So I I, I ask you the question again. Have you taken God into account? In your relationships, in, in that marriage that is teetering right now, and again, nobody here at church knows about it, but it's, it is, it, it's, it's this close. And you've done everything that you know to do to try to win that person back or to try to make sure to hold things together or pretend like nothing is wrong. Have you taken God into account and what God can do in a marriage that's broken? In your job, the one you hate, the one you don't have, the one you want, whichever. Have you taken God into account and what He can do in and through you? What about in your finances? The only question you come up with is, how are we going to make it? Because there's an awful lot of month left over at the end of your money, if you know what I mean. How are we going to make it? Have you taken God into account? What He says on how to handle things. What about in your emotions? And all you feel is anger or depression or out of control. And you say, it's just who I am. I can't do anything about it. Or I don't know what to do about it. I wish I weren't this way, but I don't know what to do to control my emotions. They're killing me. Have you taken God into account? Have you submitted those things to Him? What about in your temptations that feel so overwhelming? And you justify and you rationalize and you give in to this and you do these things. Have you taken God into account? And the chains that He wants to break in your life, have you taken God into account? For some of you, your past is killing you. And you're here this morning, and as soon as you walk through those doors, you felt so much guilt and shame and condemnation. Because of what you've done or didn't do, what you said, what you looked at, what you thought, whatever. And you walk in, and immediately Satan attacks you with all kinds of shame, and you say, I just want some, just once to not feel that way. Have you taken God into account and in what He says about it? And He says you're forgiven? That you are loved? That you can't make up for what you've done or not done? That on the cross, Jesus paid once and for all for your sins so that you don't have to keep paying for them? Have you taken God into account? What about in your decisions, the ones you don't know what to do about? And they're stacking up and you're putting them off. And God, I don't know what to do. Have you taken God into account? Have you read His Word? Know what He says about it? For us, life is uncertain, isn't it? For us, fear is paralyzing. For us, inadequacy is just a part of who we are. But you know what? I I am uncertain, but God is not. I'm afraid, but God is not. I'm inadequate, but God is not. All of this is seen most clearly as we fast forward the story to Jesus Christ. It's seen most clearly in, in Jesus as this story and all the rest of the Old Testament points to, to Him. Because in Him, you know what? We have certainty. 
that God loves us, that our sins are forgiven, that our future is secure. We have certainty in Jesus Christ and in no one else. And everybody else, we're guessing. Every other religion, every other religious leader is going to tell you what you need to do. Keep doing, keep doing, keep doing. Jesus says, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done for you. You don't have to keep doing and keep trying and wonder, am I good enough? I've told you this a million times. Guess what? You ain't good enough. I ain't good enough. So count on the one who is. We don't have to be uncertain. In Jesus, our fear is taken away. Do you know what the Apostle John said? That perfect love drives out fear. Why are we afraid? Because I I don't know. Is this going to work out? Jesus says, I love you, which takes away all of our fear. We have nothing to fear because of His love. And in Him, we have a substitute for all of our inadequacies. Where we have sinned, He was perfect. Where we have failed, He didn't. Where we have a past that haunts us, He takes it away. Where we have limitations, He is limitless. Where we have inabilities, He can do anything. You can go back to the scattering report of your life right now. As you size it up, as you make the notes, as you try to figure out what to do next, as you scout your life, your circumstances, what you're facing today and this week, have you taken God into account? Have you taken God into account? Do you know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ? Do you know what He has done to come to earth to die for you and for me? Do you know what He's capable of? Look at the resurrection. You'll find out what God is capable of. This morning, have you taken God into account in your situation, in your life, completely surrendering to Him, the only one who is certain about everything, the only one who fears nothing, and the only one who is adequate for everything that we face? Have you taken God into account? Let's pray together.